Listen to the word of the Lord. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. It's all recap, right? Verse five, put to death, therefore, whatever in you is earthly, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. These are the ways that you also once followed when you were living that life, but now you must get rid of all such things. This is the word of the Lord. So we're up to verse five of Colossians chapter three. How in the world long have I been in Colossians? Has it been like a couple years? If you asked me to emotionally estimate, I'd be like two years. Okay. I titled this one Five for Fighting, which by the chuckle, it sounds like somebody understands that's a Canadian band that's named after their love of hockey because five for fighting is the penalty you get for fighting. You get five minutes in the... Okay. But this is five vices that we are to put to death now that we've been raised with Christ. So quick recap, right? Jesus has taken on everything. He has become God. He is God become one, uh, one with us, one of us, and he becomes everything we are so that everything we are can be redeemed. God, God became, he became as we are so that we could become as he is. And that everything he became is redeemed. And if he wouldn't become it, it wouldn't be redeemed. So he was 100% so committed to you, so, so in love with you, so in pursuit of you. God's value that he places on your life is so extreme that he paid every single cost, leaving heaven behind and leaving worship behind and leaving a place where everyone did his will and adored him to come to a place where no one likes him oftentimes. His own people don't recognize him. In fact, they reject him. And he takes the form of a servant. And instead of imposing his will on humanity, he demonstrates what love looks like in a fallen, sinful, selfish, evil world. In love to rescue you and I from our selfish sinfulness, to bring us back home and make us beloved sons and daughters who are forgiven and clean and made right and who have everything we need to belong to him as, as the dearly beloved. You with me? It's a giant love story. It's actually the story that every other story that's good, that speaks to our soul, is an echo of. It's the story. It's the gospel. The love story. So Paul says, now that you've been raised up with Christ and the real you is hidden, it's invisible, and if you want to find the real you, you don't look within yourself to find the real you. You look to Jesus. You have to get to know the invisible God to know who you are. And if you walk by faith, your life will make visible the invisible realities that are the truth. The, the way that things are is not real. This is just the way they became. The world, the real world, is unreal. No, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to talk about the Matrix. We're going we're gonna to stay here. We're gonna, it's, just, it's just too low-hanging Hollywood fruit. 
No, don't encourage that. You gotta. So put your earthly, put whatever is, uh, whatever is earthly in you to death. And, th- and then he says, which th- like that, that's a whole side topic. Like when I grew up, whenever I heard the phrase worldly, uh, you know, it's like, it seemed to me that Christians thought that anything worldly was if it's fun, then it must be worldly, right? So can Christians go to the theater? No. Uh, can Christians have, have joy? No. You know, and then like the old uh, adage was, uh, sex is dirty, save it for someone you love. That's a joke, people. That's a joke. Jesus invented it. Romance is his idea. Uh, lovemaking is his idea, right? But, but there's a broken, false understanding of what is worldly that identifies enjoying your life in the physical world as worldliness, and that's not what the Bible means at all. The God of the Bible is the God who celebrates the material blessings of the world and richly blesses his people with material things to enjoy, to enjoy. How we receive those things is what worldliness is about. Do we receive them in a way that increases our joy and gratitude to him? Or do we worship them instead of him? Do we disorder our relationship to what he has made? So worldliness doesn't mean enjoying your life. We're, Christians are supposed to be the happiest people on the planet, right? Jesus was, Hebrews 1 says, uh, God has anointed you, Jesus, with the oil of joy more than all of your uh, brothers. So Jesus is the happiest person who's ever lived. Are you with me? Jesus is the smartest person who's ever lived. Are you with me? And if you don't think so, you'll follow somebody else instead of him. Jesus is the most blessed man who's ever lived. Are you with me? And if you don't think so, you'll follow them instead of him. In fact, the church has not understood that Jesus is the smartest, happiest person who's ever lived. So we've tried to use him to get heaven later while following other people we thought had a better idea about how to live now. Are you with me? But if you're convinced he's not only your savior, but the smartest and happiest person who's ever lived and that his way of teaching is the deep explanation into the most important matters of life, then suddenly you'll hang on his every word. And you won't just say, well, I've been baptized. I believe the right things. I'll get heaven later. Now let's get on with trying to figure out how to make myself happy based on what I think. I'd say that's how most Christians live. Instead, you'll hang out in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John trying to understand how he thought so that you'll understand how he related to the Father so that you can get in on the mystery that drove him in life. A few years ago, the Lord said to me, you'll never look like I look until you learn to see like I see. Does that make sense? So Paul says, now that the real you is the you in Christ, not the you your parents have named, not the you your story has named, not the, new, not, the, not the you that the tragic circumstances and battle around your life, that's not who you are. Your life story can't tell you who you are anymore. If you've accepted Jesus, the story about Jesus and what his story means gets to name you now. Not what has happened, not what you've done, not what they did to you, not what you did wrong. That doesn't get to name you anymore. If you're in Christ, your life is defined. Your identity is defined. The truth about you is not what happened to you in life or what you've done. The truth about you is what his life speaks over you. And the essence of receiving him is to trade stories with him so that the invisible God that we worship 
If your heart trades places with him, then it says your real life is hid with Christ in God. You don't see him right now with your eyes, but you see him by faith. And by faith, you receive what he says about you and you live from the invisible toward the visible. You don't live from the visible toward the other way around. A lot of people try that. They, they, they figure out that if life is going hard, God must not be blessing them. They have problems with God. They let life reveal what they think then God is like instead of letting Jesus reveal what God is like decisively. If, if, when you do that, then you got broke, a broken world that's still under the conditions of sin and death. And then when life breaks down, because it will, because life is something like unbearable suffering Amen. mixed with blessings. And if you look at life, a mixture of unbearable suffering and evil and blessings, and you say, well, that, this, this world is a reflection of God's will. False. This world is a reflection. It has some echoes of God's will left in it, but this is a world in which God's will is rarely done. So Jesus shows up and God's will in his life is done for a change. So Paul says, now the real you is hid with Christ in God. And if you want to discover the real you, you have to get to know Jesus. You can't know the Father without getting to know Jesus and you can't get to know you without getting to know Jesus. So stop pursuing you. Stop trying to get yourself actualized. Stop letting self be the king of your life. Make Jesus Lord, follow Jesus, seek Jesus, study Jesus, understand Jesus, hear Jesus' voice, walk in his word, walk in his ways, pursue the things. This is how he starts the chapter. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seek to know him, understand him, hear his voice, walk in his ways, cooperate with his spirit, know his father. And as that happens, you become the real you. You start to manifest the truth he already saw in your life, which was the reason he went to the cross, because he didn't die for garbage. He died for a treasure. He didn't die for what? You, if all you are is a dirty, rotten sinner, why would he die? He died because you were a lost son who had become a sinner. But he died to get the sin off of you, to get the sonship back in you so that your true identity and your value would rise to the surface and you would begin to walk in the love you were created from the beginning to be. So then he says, therefore, if this is all true, if this is true, then there's some stuff that we're going to have to die to. It, it was natural to us, but now it's got to become unnatural for us. Uh, the marker, oh, there it is. So... <clears throat> Have you ever heard of the learning? Uh, just you, pretend this is English, that my handwriting is in English. In the learning cycle, oh, that's a U. It just feels like when I'm this excited that my handwriting degenerates. Okay, all right, let's start there. Get the words right. Step one of the learning cycle is unconscious incompetence. You stink and you don't even realize it. You're bad at it and you don't even know because you're not even sure what that thing is, right? Unconscious incompetence. Step two of the learning cycle is conscious incompetence. You're like, oh, okay. Wow, that's a thing and I stink at it. Then you actually start to learn, and, 
And if you train hard enough at a thing, you can get to the place of conscious competence, which is to say you're good at it, but you have to focus real hard to do it. And then the final stage of when you've learned something, it's unconscious competence. You can do it really well with excellence without even thinking about it. What did I do with the lid? Here's what I'm trying to say. Behaviors reside in your body. They become, they actually reside in your body. Here's what I mean. Do you have to think real hard to walk? Oh my goodness, Kate said yes. But there was a time when you were really little, you had to focus hard to walk and you were terrible at it. You were, you, it was tragic at the beginning. You were like, ah, I'm gonna crawl, okay? That's how this is gonna go. Can you imagine if you were like, I'm only gonna do things that I'm really good at. And so you stayed crawling for your entire adult life. And then you'd be like, well, there's that guy in the mall. Uh, bro, what's up? And he'd be like, I'm good at this. And he, Why don't you get up? I hate failure. What? What do you mean you hate failure? Yeah, I'm only going to do things I'm good at because I hate failure. Well, I guess if you're only going to do things you're good at because you hate failure, you're going to be really bad at life. There's a world-renowned photographer, and he, somebody was like, how'd you get so amazing? He said, I have failed thousands of times more than you, and that's the only difference between me and you. So get busy failing. Right? Because that's the learning cycle. Everybody starts, first off, everybody starts not even knowing how bad they stink. And then secondly, we start to realize how bad we stink, and then we can begin to work on it. And when we're really good at it, it moves into our, the skill moves into your body. Have you ever been driving, and you're like, oh, how did I get here? You were lost in thought for like 20 minutes, and you arrived at your destination, and you're like, I hope I stopped for the stop signs, because there were three. And I have literally no memory of that. I had a, a cousin who could, uh, who could sleepwalk and uh, sleep potty even. And uh, apparently while you're dreaming, the trash can is vaguely similar in your mind to a urinal. That's a, a form of, a, of unconscious incompetence mingled with unconscious competence. <laughs> Oh, I actually like it. Do you know how many times I, I the Hearns Pond Road, one with the, with the railroad and the, every time a car would come up, I would, I would be like, is he stopping? Is he stopping? Is he stopping? Is he stopping? So when they, so I must be um, aging that I'm happy about more stop signs. Okay. All right. What's my point? Paul says, put to death the stuff that's in your members that's earthly. And I go, oh, I know exactly what he's talking about. We've all been schooled. We've all been homeschooled in the wrong home. You know what I'm talking about? Every single one of us once belonged to not God's kingdom, but the other kingdom. And we've been trained in this world a lot of destructive behaviors that seemed like a good idea at the beginning, right? And now we have to totally retrain. We have to totally be retrained. And some of these patterns live in our body. Here's what I mean. Um, when I say something mean and angry without even like thinking through, 
What's that all about? Or, or am I the only one who does that? I bash my bald head into an open cupboard door in the kitchen, and before I even think through a response, I, I growl like an animal. <laughs> yeah, it hurts really bad. And Carrie hates that. She's like, oh, your response. That's because that's how she actually talks. Have you ever heard her talk? This is how she sounds. I'm just kidding. I yell at and sometimes, and sometimes when I bash my head without even stopping to think, I have smashed it with my fist and the thing broke off the hand. And then, then, then what do I do? I spend the whole rest of the evening fixing what I broke in repentance. Now, I'm supposed to be godly. Where did that come from? Well, y'all, there's some patterns that have, of, of, there's some patterns of bad character that I practiced so long they're in my body. I don't have to decide I'm going to smash something and be irresponsible. It just comes out of me in the moment because I still need some more transformation, some more sanctification happening. Okay? Uh, there's a, I want to introduce you to this. Should I just make that noise a lot? You know, it's my school. We can talk about what we want. Just kidding. The Super Mario principle, can you imagine if every time you played the game, who played, who has grew up playing Super Mario Brothers on the original 8-bit Nintendo? Come on now. Now, if I said, if I said who here has finished the game? Oh my goodness. Right? Now, if I said, how many times did you fall in the first pit? You don't remember that. You don't remember that, though, right? You don't, I mean, you know you fell in. But how many of you were like, you fell in like twice, and you're like, I quit? No, because your focus in that game, the reason it's fun, is because you have a goal. And you're so fixated on getting to the castle and saving the princess that you're not as focused on how many times you fell. And here's the Super Mario principle. I've seen this with Christians. Christians are so obsessed with sin avoidance. They make sin avoidance the goal of their life. And it's like, well, no wonder you are extremely discouraged all the time and sinning and quitting. Everybody's gonna fall, but the people who are gonna thrive in this Christian life are not the people who are obsessed with sin, thinking about sin, always obsessing over what's sinning and sinning and sinning. The, the correct focus of the Mario game is get to the castle, rescue the princess, also enjoy the journey. You know? And, and the, the correct focus of the Christian life is not stop sinning, make sure you don't sin, we gotta be perfect, oh my word, if I sin, it's gonna be the worst thing that ever happened. I, strangely enough, the more you focus on sin, the more you're going to sin. Like Paul has that brilliant insight that when you live under law, yeah, it actually provokes sin in you. But when you live under grace, which is you're living in relationship with a God of love who is face-to-face, smile, because you know what changes you, right, guys? What changes you in the Christian life? Is it you trying harder? Are we called to try hard? Yeah. But where does the major transformation come from? 
The major transformation in the Christian life comes when you look in God's face and he's smiling. Do you know what makes for safe humans? It's when they're little kids, when they're very, very tiny in their first stages and they have a mommy and a daddy whose faces look on them with love. Now, God can redeem that if you didn't have that. God can do that. But you were designed to be looked upon as somebody's delight. That's what changes you. And by the way, that's what frees you from sin. Because sin is loving the wrong things. It's not just doing the wrong things. It's loving the wrong things. And if every single time you, you screw up, you feel you have an impossible to please angry judge looking at you with a frown, who wants to play that video game? I don't even like to play. What's that video game we were talking about last night? Majora's Mask? It's... I don't even want to play that game because it has a timer. <laughs> Give me an open world game where I just catch a whole bunch of chickens and waste my time maximizing my sword. Oh no, what have I done here? No, I'm not playing Majora's Mask. I started, but I knew it was going to take over too much of my life and heart. So maybe one day when I... But I, but I have wild breath. Does that count? Okay, let's get back on point. So Paul lists five, five sins that we are to put to death. Fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. The first one. I just, I just want to apologize in advance for my handwriting. The first one is sexual immorality, but the Greek word is, don't talk and write different things in your writing, Tim. Your brain can't handle it. Pornea. Now, of course, you can hear the modern word porn for pornography built right into the Greek word. And while that's not exactly what that Greek word is talking about, it's actually not, not that far off. What it means is all manner of, of sexual immorality is, is to be put to death. All matter of sexual immorality, anything uh, that violates this principle of uh, any kind of unhealthy sexuality outside of marriage, fornication, adultery, uh, well, prostitution. In the, in the time in which Paul was speaking, did you guys know this? Their religion involved prostitution. You would go to the temple of the gods and have sex with a sacred prostitute as a way of becoming one flesh with the God. So the culture that Paul's talking to is very, very, very different from the culture of following Jesus, or to put it another way, the Jesus people were very countercultural when it came to sexual ethics, and we still are. All right, that's the first thing. The second word, he says, put to death, impurity. Oh man, it's, handwriting is getting even worse. And this is the Greek word uh, akartharsia. And it's literally a word you would use to describe decayed, dead, decomposing, this is gross, flesh in the grave. Ugh. Literally, akatharsia means dead, decayed, rotten flesh in the grave. Figuratively, what he's talking about is filthy behavior, rotten behavior, the opposite of cleanness, holiness, and oftentimes the way akatharsia was used in their culture um, had to do with sexual immorality, but just as often it meant 
uh, luxurious, profligate, lustful, immoral living. But the word filth gets it across. Third, third thing Paul says Christians are to put to death is cravings. Can anyone read this at all? I don't even know. This is the word pathos, which is where we get our word passion. In the New Testament, this word is typically negative. Okay, thank you. In Romans 1.26, we read that God uh, gave people up when they, were, when they willfully continued to reject him. He finally said, okay, fine. And he backed off and gave people up to their pathos to do what ought not be done. And um, it's translated degrading passions in Romans 1.26. In Galatians 5.24, we read, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its pathos and desires. Interesting. So, and Paul tells Timothy, this, is, this one is a fascinating one to me. Paul tells Timothy, don't put any young women on the list of widows Okay, so they had like, almost like nuns. So if your husband had died, they had this group of women who would, who would like take a, uh, like vows, like I'm gonna be married to Jesus from now on. And, and they would, the church would financially support them. So it was like the earliest sort of form of being a nun. And Paul says, don't put, so Paul, older, the older pastor says to the younger pastor, hey, don't put younger widows on that list because when they experience pathos, they're gonna wanna get married. Now, is that, does that mean this word pathos is sinful? Oh, I'm glad you have the ability to have nuance and complexity and depth here. But what it would be sinful, right, is if pathos ruled. I also, what I love about this is your New Testament, you know how sometimes modern Christians have the impression that men have a sex drive, but women plant flowers. And I'm like, huh? Have you read your Bible? The Bible has women have a sex drive and they should probably get married so that they can have sex in a way that glorifies God. Yeah, it's in your book. Okay. But we're, to, we're not to be ruled by cravings. We're not to be ruled by sexual immorality. We're not to be ruled by impurity. We're not to be ruled by cravings. What's the fourth one? Epithumian cocaine, evil desires. Evil desires, epithumean cocaine, yearnings, cravings, lusts, desires are epithume. Now, epithumi is used all over the New Testament in ways that are not even sinful. Like Jesus, when he says, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover meal with you, that's epithumane. That's this word. But this has the modifier cocaine, which means crooked. Kakos would be straight, like an arrow, plumb. But cocaine would be crooked, shifty. So cocaine epithumane would be destructive des desires or evil desires or injurious desires, or maybe you would just say crooked desires. When you talk about lust, immediately Christians go, we're talking about sex, that's what it is. That's the only thing Christians lust after. But Paul says, actually, like this word, a good translation of this is evil lusts, um, only a small percentage of it is sexual. And by not having uh, a very penetrating uh, moral 
comprehension of how the human heart works, we kind of go, well, it doesn't matter that I must be first in line and I must have the nicest car and I only know who I am if I'm wealthy and if my house is dirty, it reflects badly on my character and I have to be thanked or I'm mad and no one called me. Do you understand all the lusts happening in that, in that heart? Lust to be important, lust to be seen, lust to be somebody, lust for, lust for food. How about that one? Lust for food, lust for status, lust for reputation. Oh, my word. You ruin, you know how many parents resent their children for ruining their reputation? See, because when our hearts are disordered, we become something other than love. When we love the wrong things, we have a hard time being the grace of God. And our calling as humans is to be the grace of God in the flesh, to be the grace of God. And the things we have the hardest time forgiving, usually it's there's some sort of disordered thing going on in our hearts that's causing us to become less than love. Lust for achievement, lust for recognition, lust for money, lust for power, uh, lust for beautiful clothing, lust for approval from people, to be the first, to be the best, to be seen as right by our peers. And this, of course, is on, in our conservative uh, social media. They do a good job talking about this. They say, hey, those on the conservative side, they say, hey, some of you on the left seem more concerned about appearing right than about real justice. And then those on the left have a similar criticism of those on the right. But lust to be seen a certain way by our peers, lust to be appreciated and thanked, lust to be invited, included, and celebrated. And if I didn't get invited, included, and celebrated, it's the end of the world. What other lust do you think we carry in our hearts? Stuff. Ooh, that trinket will make me happy for a minute. Keeping up with the Joneses. Yeah, I don't even know who they are, but we definitely have to stay ahead of them slightly. Huh? Lust for drama. Why, though? But you're right. But why, though? It's getting a little boring in here. Better make some bad choices and get something to talk about. You know? Better show up with a new tattoo on my face right in front of Grandma. Right there. 2021 Delaware State Fair tattoo right across my forehead. Ah, no regrets on that one. So if, if destructive evil desires are bad, does that mean desires are bad? I heard a preacher who I really love say desire is the problem. We got to get these people to where they don't feel and follow desires. I don't know if that's how he walked, but let's pretend this is how he walked. Okay, butt forward. We got, Christian, we got to teach Christians to make choices. We got to choose what's love. Who cares what you feel? And I'm like, well, hold on now. That'd be like if, if I said, like if it was, you know, Valentine's Day and my wife said, aren't you going to kiss me? And I said, do I have to? And she's like, well, yeah, because love's a choice, so just choose to. So I was like, ugh, fine, and I kissed her. I mean, that'd be some kiss, right? Why? Because what's missing? 
Desire, come on, man, you know better. See, because we used to say, love's a choice. And I go, no, love makes choices. Love is more than just a choice, but love makes choices. And sometimes we choose the right thing until we have the right desires. But that doesn't mean we excuse the lack of right desires or pretend it's not wrong. Do you think God's so put up with you that he gave his only son? No, he actually loved you. His love made choices, but love is much more than just choices. I feel like that's enough on that point. Someone who is ruled by evil desires, you know, Philippians uh, 3.19 says, there's people like this, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their God... Their mind is on earthly things. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their God is their... Whatever they feel strongly is what they do. Someone who is ruled by whatever they feel, their God is their stomach. They're not ruled by Jesus. They're ruled by what they feel. I feel sad. I'm not going to obey today. I feel happy. I'm going to worship Jesus. I feel, beep, I'm going to go do that naughty thing. So you go into revival. They stir up the right feelings, and you you thrive, and you seem to be religious for a minute. Well, then you get out of that environment. You don't feel it anymore. I know, somebody's fault, but I'm just going to do what I feel. Your God is your stomach. If you're ruled by your desires, your God is your stomach. It's a lack of maturity. Actually, it's a disordered self. In Christ, the self is meant to be turned upright again. Outside of Christ, it says our spirit is dead and we're ruled by our body and our soul. But in Christ, our spirit is in union with God. We come to life and now we're to be led by our spirit. So our body and soul still matter. Our body and soul still matter, guys but we're not to be ruled by our body and soul. We're to be led by the Spirit. By the Spirit, we're to put to death the misdeeds of the flesh. And if we do that, Romans 8 says, we are the children of God. So the self is actually turned right side up again. And our loves and our affections are beginning to be ordered correctly so that we can love. How are we tracking? I have one more. Pleonexian, covetousness, greed, a desire for more than one share. This is fascinating to me. When John the Baptist came announcing that the one who is coming soon, Jesus, is, is just about to get here, so we got to get ready. And then people came to him and they said, what do we need to do? What do we need to do? Does anyone remember the sort of stuff he said? Soldiers came to him. What do we need to do? What did he say? And what did it look like? Yeah, repent, be baptized. And then they said, but how should we live? And he said, stop taking advantage of each other and using your power to get stuff. Somebody else came to him and he said, what should I do? And he said, if you have two coats, share one. If you have food, share it. Every single person that came to John the Baptist, the issue he addressed was greed. Not, I mean, literally every single one. 
you can tell the kingdom has come to, to, to a heart by hospitality and generosity. Paul goes so far as to say, greed is idol worship. Money's your God. If you aren't generous, money is your God. And you go, well, that's kind of harsh. Is it harsh or is it liberating? In other words, are these sins good for your life or do they damage your life? Because like when I was a kid, I thought sin was fun <laughs> and righteousness was boring. And then I sinned a lot and it was horrible. <laughs> I mean, it was fun for a minute and it got sour quick. And then my life started to break apart. And then I hated me and I hated life. And because I was so distorted, I viewed everyone around me through a distorted lens, which meant they actually looked poopy too. Jesus, by the way, doesn't have any of those distorting filters. So when he looks at people, he's not only seeing through clear eyes in himself, he's seeing right past how you and I behave to who we're called to be, who he created us to be. He refuses to let how we treat him change what he thinks about us. That's, that's un, we're not used to that. Every relationship we ever had taught us that if you do this for me, then I'll do this. But if you hurt me, I'll hurt you back. Every relationship taught us that. Unless you have supernatural grace people living in your life. But greed is idolatry. Uh, there's different species of greed. You know this? Like some people, they, they, they are in love with money because they're in love with power. That's not the same as being greedy out of fear of lack, is it? They're different things, but it's both greed. And, and I just gave two examples. There's probably dozens of examples of different species of greed, just like there's different species of pride. The fear-based one, I think we have a little more sympathy. It's like, oh, well, you grew up poor and you made an inner vow that said, I will never make my children live through what my parents made me live through. You ever seen people like that? They're working three jobs to make sure that the kids have everything they need, except, by the way, quality time with dad. Where are you at, bro? That's right. I'm paying the bills. Yeah, well, just pay less bills and be home for a minute. Then I get to know you a little, but okay. Well, when you go on with what you said about trying to keep up with the Joneses, when you think that you have to live in a certain house and you have to have a new car every two years and you have to have a certain level, the next thing you know... Now you run it, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> I had a friend in high school, and he said, he said, my mom said that uh, if I ask girls out on a date and they won't go out with me, I should just lower my standards. <laughs> and I was like, are you, Josh, are you serious right now? He goes, no, nah, I'm just totally kidding. <laughs> but sometimes we don't have time to give God what God deserves because our other areas of life are disordered. Does that make sense? Yeah. Our actual whole lives are connected things. Every little change you make in one area is attached to every other area of your life. One of the little counseling things that I figured out that it was so powerful is we're not looking to change everything in our life all at once. We're looking to make the little change that can make a difference. And sometimes just a little change that makes a little difference over time makes a huge difference. A huge difference. Like, for example, 
When you feel like your life is terrible, instead of saying out loud, I hate my life, and then cussing and throwing things, just hold your tongue. Some things you say, uh, how do I say this the right way? Sometimes the hard things we're living through in life are a direct consequence of some of the things we have spoken over our life in the past. Amen. I'm not even talking about some sort of name it and claim it thing. Yeah. I'm talking about things that get formed inside of us. Yeah. I have more stuff, but we'll talk about it later. For example, disciplines of engagement and disciplines of, of abstinence and you know, how these things work in real life. That doesn't look like a happy list, does it? Ew. Well, that's why I think it's important to keep the Super Mario principle here at the top. Like, none of this stuff is life. But Paul mentions it to say, I'm sure we could make longer lists, but these are just illustrative. Illustri illustri illustrative. Illu you got to put the emphasis on the right syllable. Il Il they show examples. Why don't you go and stand? All right, so I'm just going to pray, and I'm going to invite the Lord to begin to move among us. And uh, probably most of you are going to have some awareness of God having put a, a little spotlight on some part of your, your heart or life. It's extremely important to me that we provide opportunity for you to respond to God. I don't much care uh, if you come up to the front and get prayer or not. Prayer team can come forward. Uh, you can respond to the Lord right where you are. But I do think, uh, I need to say this, it's important that you not say to yourself, I'll respond to God later at my house. That, that's not helpful. Been there, bought the t-shirt. I'll respond to God later. No, 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 scripture repeatedly says today, 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 today. So I don't care if you come forward, I don't care if you sit down, but I need you to do business with God, so let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for who you are. And I invite you, Holy Spirit, to come right now in greater measure. Come right now in greater measure, God. Uh, if, if when we were talking about all, kind, all the kinds of sexual immorality, you resonated with that and you said, I want free of that, respond to God right now in your heart and say, help me, Jesus. Just respond, just surrender to him. I give you this area. I know there is freedom, even though I haven't seen it yet. Right where you are, just respond to him. If you know there's stuff in your life, and we were talking about impurity, dead things, things in your life, they're bearing no, there's no life on them, but they're taking up huge zones, big amounts of time and energy and attention. And you know they're not, they're not for you. Acknowledge it right now to him. What's he putting his finger on? 
because he wants freedom for us. He wants to fill every nook and cranny with light and hope. He wants us so free and so alive. The cravings and evil desires and need to be first. If you resonated with any of that, of thinking of times and nobody called you on the phone and and nobody gave you recognition for services done and you just felt excluded and you stewed on it in a way that was not helpful, uh, acknowledge that. And invite him into the root. Say, love me, Father. You be for me what those people never could. You be for me, Father, what those people never could. And this thing of trusting in money. uh, Maybe you don't relate to the idea of just wanting all the money in the world, but maybe you relate to the idea of fear of lack. Maybe you relate to the idea of living with a sense of dread, not having enough. Say it to him. Say, God, I trust you. God, let, I want you to be uh, where I put my hope. Say it to him. Say it to him. And right now, I, I would just put it this way. If you feel the Holy Spirit uh, drawing you up to the front to receive prayer, just come, come quickly. Come now. Don't delay. Don't look around the room. Don't, don't outsmart yourself. Just come up right now. And I'm going to turn this mic over to Linda, and I'm going to start wandering around and praying for people. I encourage you to pray for somebody before you leave the room. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks so much. While we were sitting here and Tim was talking, Rusty and I have lived every one of these. We brought it into our marriage. We lived with it in our marriage. We were born again and baptized, and we were still dealing with this, you guys. And you know, I think that the reason that we got free was we were willing to put aside the shame and the pride that came along with that and the fear of people finding out, and we let people pray for us. And, and we, we opened up to people and we had to put that fear and that pride and that shame away. We've shared things before. Rusty and I both struggled with sexual immorality differently. <laughs> I'm just telling you, we're on the other side of it and we're free. So we can talk about it now. We don't have any shame We don't have any fear. We don't have any pride about it. We just know we're free. And so we will share with you. (laughs) If you're struggling, don't walk out that door because the struggle's just going to get worse. But you can be free today. You can come up here and get prayer or you can just raise your hand and somebody will pray for you.